0: So have you ever had uh, something and thought, wow, this is perfect? Like maybe you, you hiked up to that spot on the mountain and the sunset and it was the perfect sunset from the perfect spot on the mountain. Or maybe, maybe you had this meal that was served up perfectly and it tasted perfect and you just sat there and you're like, this is a perfect moment. Or maybe you came home to a perfectly clean house. Or you fit back into those jeans that, of course, make you look perfect. And maybe it was a freshly mowed yard. Sometimes that's pretty perfect. Or a flower bed that just looks right. Have you ever had one of those perfect moments? If you have, then you can vouch for this definition, or this way to kind of picture what perfect is. And it's this, is that complete equals Perfect. Right Something is complete, therefore it's perfect. If it was incomplete, it wouldn't be perfect because it would still need more work. But when something is perfect, it is complete. And the reason all of these things, the, this reason this perfect moment for you was perfect was because it matched in your head what this moment should look like, complete and, and done. And that's why it was perfect. It doesn't need anything else. And these perfect moments that we talked about, the sunset, the food, the yard, the flower bed, the jeans. You also know this to be true about those perfect moments and it's this. Perfect moments only last for a moment. Don't they? That that sunset on the side of the mountain, that perfect sunset from the perfect spot turns into a hike back to your car in the dark. Not so perfect. That meal that was perfectly plated and tasted wonderful becomes a sink full of dirty dishes, right? That clean house is quickly transformed by a child wanting to play with Play-Doh or even worse, glitter. (laughs) You can't get rid of that stuff, right? Those jeans that you fit perfectly into, we all know what happens to those jeans, they shrink, What well, was funny about that. Um, <laughs> the perfect yard gets weeds, and the perfect flower bed, guess what? It has to be replanted. Right? Perfect moments only last for moments, and yet there's something in us that strives for that perfection in there. There's something in us that wants everything to be perfect. We want the perfect house, we want the perfect job, we want the perfect kids, we want the perfect marriage, we want the perfect Friday night. Why is this? Why do we strive for perfection? That's the question we're going to look at today. Why? What's in us that wants to create and strive for perfection? And what we're going to see today as we work through our text is this, that Jesus is greater than my perfection. Now, here's how much of a perfectionist I am. Do you know how long I labored over what pronoun to use before perfection? It's a hard choice because if I say your perfection, what does that say about me? If I say our perfection, that's a little too distant. If I say my perfection, do you think I'm just talking about me? See, we all struggle with wanting to be right. And actually, I think our struggle is we all struggle with wanting to be seen as right, whether we are or not. That's what perfection is. We all struggle to be wanting to be seen as completely complete. And the question we're going to see today is why is that and why does it not work? We're in a series called Greater Than, which is what the symbol is behind me. And as we work our way through Hebrews, what we're seeing is that Jesus is greater than. He's greater than all of our ups and downs. He's greater than all of our fears and doubts. He's greater than all of our failures. And he's even greater than all of our successes. And today, we're going to see that he he is greater than our perfection. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. And we're going to do the whole chapter, so brace yourself. We're gonna cover a lot of ground and I'm not kidding when I say, I don't know if, if you were with me when I was praying, this passage is a very confusing passage and I'm gonna try and bring some clarity out of it uh, but we'll see how that goes by the time we get to the end, all right? So it's Hebrews chapter seven, it's on page 844 if you're using the Bible, that's in front of you and if you don't have a Bible, please take that one with you because we'd love for, you, for it to be our gift to you or you can also download the Bible app, uh, go to events and click on Fellowship Asheville. And we're right there, and the announcements are there, and all the passages are there that we're going to be looking at today. And and as you're turning there, let me catch you up where we are, because uh, at the end of chapter 6, there was this little phrase that kind of reintroduced a guy to us named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was was introduced to us a little bit before that, a a chapter ago. Um, But now the preacher, and and remember I use the word preacher. When I talk about preacher, I'm not talking about me. The book of Hebrews is a sermon. Much of the New Testament is letters from one person to another. And and, and I believe, uh, as do other commentators, that that the book of Hebrews is a little different. It's not a letter, it's a sermon that was preached. And what we don't know is, is who wrote that sermon or who preached that sermon, but we do know who the sermon was preached to. And it was preached to a church of people who are Jesus followers, but who grew up in a Hebrew home, who grew up under the nation of Israel. That's why it's called Hebrews, because it's a sermon to Hebrews. And so when I say preacher, uh, that's me referring to the guy who preached this message. And And, and what we also know is that because... It was a sermon to a room full of Hebrews. This preacher takes certain liberties that they would understand things that oftentimes we don't understand. We don't connect those dots as easily because we didn't grow up in a Jewish home. Help uh, bring some clarity. And so this guy Melchizedek is one of those dots that I need to connect because he's a very mysterious person in the scriptures. He's mentioned twice in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you see him in the book of Genesis where uh, Abraham had just finished this battle, and God gave him victory, and, and as he's leaving the battle, this guy named Melchizedek shows up, and Abraham sees the godliness in this guy, and as a response to what he sees in this guy, Melchizedek, he offers up 10% of the, of, of the spoils from the, the battle to, Abra- to, to Melchizedek as a tithe, and so he sees that this guy is a pretty powerful guy, and so, so we see him there, and then we don't see him again until the Psalms, and there's, there's a psalm about him, a song in the, in the book of Psalms, and he's mentioned there. And, and the place that he's mentioned there is where he moves into the New Testament because the preacher uses that verse over and over and over again. And he takes those, those two instances of Genesis and Psalm, Psalm 110, and puts them together and we get this picture of who Melchizedek is. And so that's where he opens up this chapter 7 and this part of his message. He's going to talk about who Melchizedek is. And so look, look at verse 1. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem and priest of the most high gods, that was his title, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of a part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also the king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, and having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues, a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. so this guy, this preacher is saying, this guy is a pretty perfect picture of what a priest looks like. He's so perfect that Abraham tithed to them. He's a king of peace and he's a king of righteousness. And this Melchizedek is a priest with one distinction though. This priesthood that he's a priest of it lasts forever, right? It says that his priesthood lasts forever. And, and, and it's here that we see something in our formula about what perfect is, and it gives us a glimpse into for something to be perfect in the Bible, for something to be perfect for God, it has to have this, this additional ingredient other than just completeness, and it's this. For something to be perfect in the Bible, it has to be complete and eternal, and it'll be perfect, right? It has to be complete times eternal equals perfect. And what this preacher is gonna do is he's gonna keep talking about Melchizedek, and he's gonna leave us with this question, is he perfect? And then he's gonna introduce Aaron and the Levites, and I'll explain them in a minute, and he's gonna say, are they perfect? And then he's gonna show us what perfection is. And if you look at verse three, it says that Melchizedek resembles the son. And then that's a question that's out there. Is Melchizedek a real person or did he resemble the son of God because he was the son of God? Was this Jesus showing up on the scene early as this guy Melchizedek, being that he is the, the king of peace and king of righteousness? And, and the answer is he's mysterious and we don't know. Right, there's people that say both things. And this preacher though is pulling him out because he wants us to see, does this guy fit the formula for perfection. Is he complete? Is he eternal? And so now he's going to show us who isn't the symbol of perfection. Look at verse 5. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. So now he's going to introduce these Levites. And the Levites, so, so you had Abraham, uh, you had the 12 tribes of Abraham, and, and when they moved into the promised land, everybody got land to build their families and to build uh, their tribes with, except one tribe didn't for the nations. That was the tribe of Levi, because their tribe were to be the priests for the nations. So their homes were in the synagogue and in the temple. And so they didn't get land. And so from this tribe of Levi um, is all these priests. And so this, this preacher is saying, okay, you've got Melchizedek who's a priest forever, and then you've got the tribe of Levi, who are the priests to the nation of Israel, and they serve in the temple, and they serve in the synagogues, and it was their job to receive tithes, so you've got Melchizedek received a tithe from Abraham, and you've got the Levites received, tithe, received tithes from their brothers, from all the other tribes, because people would show up to the temple and pay tithes, and the Levites would receive it. But what this preacher is saying is that the tribe of Levi was really no different than any other tribe. That was just their job. And the reason that they're not all different is because they all came from Abraham. And so this tribe of Levi isn't any better. It isn't any better, it isn't any worse. It isn't any more complete than any of the other tribes. But there is someone who is more complete. Look at verse 6. It says, but this man who does not have descent. so he's talking about Melchizedek, this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond a few that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And so he's making the point, this Melchizedek, so if you have, if you have this balance scale and you've got the, the Levites here and, and you've got Melchizedek here, he's kind of moving it over a little bit. He's saying, Melchizedek, he's a little bit better than the tribe of Levi. But the question is, is he perfect? And stay with me because this is going to get a little awkward and then it gets better, all right? Look at verse 8. It says, In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. That was the awkward part, right? And so what this preacher is saying, have you ever been sitting in a sermon? I'm sure, not here. Uh, But sitting in a sermon somewhere, and you're like, where is this guy going? If you were listening to this sermon, I would think at this point in the message, you'd be like, where is this guy going? We're talking about Abraham's loins. Right, but his point is, You've got Melchizedek, and you've got the tribe of Levi, and they both received tithes. Was one greater than the other? And he says, metaphorically, Levi was still in Abraham when Abraham paid the tithes to Melchizedek. So in a sense, you could say Levi offered tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. Again, Melchizedek is better than the Levite. So what's the big idea here? Look at this in verse 11. Now, if perfection, because here's our question, it's about perfection. If perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise from the order of Melchizedek rather than... Uh, than one named after the order of Aaron. Now remember, Aaron is now who he's gonna talk about to kind of picture the Levites because Aaron was the first Levitical priest. He was Moses' brother and and Moses led the nation and Aaron led the church. Aaron led the the worship of the people. He led the temple and the synagogue. And so so Aaron was the first Levite. So he kind of represents all those Levites. And so we've got two priests here, Melchizedek and you've got Aaron. And this preacher is asking the question, if perfection... Remember, our formula for perfection is completeness times eternal equals perfection. And if perfection could be attained through one of these priests, why do we need the other? So if perfection could have come through Melchizedek, why do we have the tribe of Levi? And why do we have those priests? Or if if perfection could be attained through them, why do we have another one coming? Why did Jesus have to come? If perfection could be attained through the Levites. So again, it's this question of why do we seek perfection? And where is perfection found? Look at verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with the tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So now he's gonna, he's gonna add another piece to the puzzle. And he says, you've got Melchizedek and you've got Aaron and then you've got someone who rose to the status of a priest who wasn't even from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. And nowhere in the law does it say that a priest could come out of the tribe of Judah. So this is another player in the game of where is perfection found and why do we seek it? Look at verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not not based on a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. So in other words, this priest who is perfect and complete isn't from the tribe of Levi. And he doesn't need to meet that requirement because he's from a different source. He is similar to Melchizedek in that he has an indestructible life. He lasts forever. And so Melchizedek had this forever priesthood. He had that, but the question is, was he complete? And then you've got this other person coming in who also is forever, who also has a forever priesthood, whose life is indestructible. Look at verse 17. It says, For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And so again, we see two things. One tries uh, for perfection and always falls short, and that's the law. And see, in the commandments of the Old Testament, you got the 10 commandments of the Old Testament. That's kind of what embodies the law. And so if you were sitting here as a Hebrew congregation, like when I say law, you would know exactly what I was talking about. And you know exactly what this preacher was talking about. And the things that are in parentheses here for the law made nothing perfect would be scandalous to you if you didn't already know who this player was that he's introducing as the third party that is perfection. Because to you, all you had was the law and that was the way you approached God. And as a matter of fact, a lot of times when Jesus talked to people, they came to him saying, what else must I do to inherit life, inherit eternal life? I already keep the 10 commandments. Because in their mind, the law pointed to perfection. And if they did the 10 commandments, they were perfect. And yet, to this crowd of Jesus following Hebrews, he could just put it in parentheses. By the way, you know, the law never made anybody perfect. The law was intended to show you your imperfection because you can't keep the Ten Commandments. There's this commercial on family, about Family Feud where Steve Harvey is doing the drill, you know, the, the speed round at the end. And he asked this lady, uh, how many of the Ten Commandments have you broken this week? And she said, seven. Seven. And so, you know, because the, the commercial is their interaction at the end. And, she, and, and so he goes, you broke seven of the, which three did you keep? You know, because like, like that's our response, right? We, we want to look at the Ten Commandments and go, yeah, I haven't done that. I'm complete. You see, the law is designed to show us we can't keep it. It's our babysitter until real perfection came. Because here's what real true perfection does. Look at verse 19. It says, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. You see, real and true perfection draws us to God, not away from him. And when I ask the question, why do we strive for perfection? And we're going to answer that in a minute. But the reason, the way you know that you are striving for perfection is because you get to a point Where you don't need God to achieve it. You get to a point where perfection is you can be complete without God. If that's the case, that is not biblical holy perfection, that is self righteousness. Because real perfection draws you to God, not away from Him. Look at verse 20. And it is not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. And this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, covenant. So now this preacher is saying who the next person is. You've got Melchizedek, you've got Aaron, and now you've got Jesus. And he said, and Jesus is the perfect one. He is the guarantor of a new covenant. And what this word guarantor means, it's a person who would would enter an agreement with two people. And so they they establish this, this commitment, they establish this covenant, and then you've got somebody who would come in and they would put their name on that commitment and say, if either one of these people can't fulfill their obligation, I will step in and I will make it right. In our culture, we have a cosigner. If you go to the bank and you need a loan and they look you up and down and say, yeah, you're going to need a cosigner. What that means is that they don't think you can pay the loan back. And they want you to have somebody else put their name on the line who has more money and more finding it in you. Because when you can't pay the bill, they know they're not going to come finding it in you. They're going to come looking for that cosigner. Because when they put their name on there, what that cosigner is saying is that they will pay the debt that you can't pay. And what this preacher is saying is that Jesus has done that. There is a debt that we have have put on ourselves called sin, and we can't pay it by being perfect. And Jesus is the one who has signed on the dotted line for us. And he is the one who is paying the debt that we incurred with our sins. He is the one that is making all things complete. You see, this preacher is saying Melchizedek didn't become our cosigner. Jesus did. And so when you've got Melchizedek and you've got Aaron, you've got the tribe of Levi, they're still not perfect. There's one who is. Look at verse 23. How y'all doing, by the way? Told you we got a lot to cover, right? Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So again, he's looking looking at the Levites. The Levites weren't perfect. Why? Because they kept dying, right? You'd have a priest and he'd get old and he would die. And then a new priest would come up. They weren't eternal. And so this formula of perfection, that complete times eternal equals perfect, so far there's only one person fitting this formula. And here is why this is important. In verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, in some of your Bibles, by the word uttermost, if you're using the ESV, it'll have a little letter or number by it, kind of superscript above it. And what that means, if you look down the footnotes, you can see how else that word can be translated, what that word means. If you have that, the other way uttermost can be translated is complete. That this perfect one is complete, so therefore he can save completely anyone who comes to him. You see, because Jesus is perfect, only he is able to save. He is able to save completely all those who come to him. He is forever, he is complete, and so he is perfect. And so a way to think about our formula is this, that complete times eternal equals Jesus. Jesus is our perfect one. But now remember, our sermon today isn't just that Jesus is perfect. Like if, if, if you go home and, 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 and y'all are over lunch, you're like, wow, how was church for you today? And you say, well, okay, it was a little confusing. Uh, we talked about this guy named Mel. We talked about this other guy named Levi. We talked about Aaron. And we talked about Jesus. But where we landed was that Jesus is perfect. No, number one, great. You're with me. You're listening. That's great. But if I let you leave here with just the knowledge that Jesus is perfect, I do you a huge disservice. Because as a church, we don't want to just give you information, we want to invite you into a transformation with God. We wanna invite you into a transformational relationship with the Jesus who is perfect, not just to know that he is perfect. And so today's message I opened With the question, why do we keep striving for perfection? You see, we keep doing this. Look at this formula. We keep taking this formula for perfection, complete times eternal, and we insert our own name in there. And so to Jesus, we try to be the ones that are complete. We try to be the ones that don't need God. See, at the beginning of the message, I asked you a question. Why do we keep striving for perfection? The answer is simple, because we think we can get it. That's why we keep striving for it. We think we can be complete without God. We keep trying to live as though we are complete without God. And when I say we, I mean me. I don't just mean you, I mean me. I try and create my own definition of perfection and try and live by. I try and do my best job up here on Sunday, and, and I'm going to share a story with you that uh, you know. I, I don't. Well, I'll be honest. With you, I don't know how I think about it theologically, but I'm just going to tell you what it did for me. Um, if, if you know any of my story, you know that that the the thing that I'm doing right now is the thing that I told God I don't want to do for Him. I sat in seminary getting my degree in counseling. Loved it and said, God, there's two things I don't ever want. Literally, this is why I would do this. I don't know, but I did. I don't want to be a church planter and I don't want to be a preacher. So in 2008, we planted Fellowship Asheville. And in 2012, I became the the lead pastor and preacher here. Um, Funny how God works, isn't it? But the reason I don't want to do that is because I don't like standing in front of y'all. I don't like preaching Hebrews chapter 7. It's a confusing chapter, right? And and, and it isn't just Hebrews 7. It's anytime I get up here and, and, and hold the word of God open in front of you, there's this holy weight to it. And it'd be so much easier for me just to kind of be behind the scenes. But this is where God has called me. And because of that, there's a lot of imperfection in this. And I want it to be right for you. I want it to be good for you. And on a bad day, I want it to be perfect And I want it to be perfect because I want it to be complete. And I want you to come to me and say, Fred, you did a great job. That's what I want. That's my insecurity. And there was this woman at church uh, who, um, and this is the part where it gets, the theology gets kind of weird. And like I said, I'm not even sure where I stand on all this. but, But a lot of times she would get visions from the Lord. And 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 as I talked to her about these visions, it was really interesting because I couldn't find anything scripturally wrong with the visions that she had, which was an indicator and a confirmation that, all right, let's 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 go down this road a little bit. And there was one Sunday I had finished preaching, it was in between services, and she came up to me and she goes, Fred, I just had this neatest picture in my head, this neatest vision. And I just want to share it with you. And I said, Okay. And keep in mind, this is me knowing every time I stand up here, I feel insecure, I strive for perfection. And she said, I looked over, and Jesus was sitting in one of the chairs. And he was so excited to hear what you are going to say. And it was just this swelling, I don't know why I'm tearing up about it, but it was this sweet moment of, I think Jesus judges me on what I say, but he's excited about me preaching the word of God. A lot of times we take these attempts to God and and we try and shine them up really good and we try and make them look perfect and really he just wants us to bring them to him because he's excited when we do. And I share that with you because I want you to know as we talk about perfection and talk about Jesus being greater than my perfection, I actually think I chose the right pronoun that he is greater than my perfection. He's greater than your perfection too, but he is greater than my perfection. And see, and here's our great hope in this passage, that if Jesus is perfect, we don't have to be. See, Jesus is perfect, so I don't have to be. So church, let's just agree that God went to a lot of effort to give us Jesus. Jesus. He went to a lot of effort to show us how Jesus was better than Melchizedek, he's better than the Levites, that he is the perfect one and we are best suited when we let Jesus be the perfect one. So if you're new to church, here's what this means. To have a relationship with God, you don't have to impress him nor do you have to hide from him. That because of Jesus, you really can come to him just as you are. Because of Jesus, he sees you as perfect. And it means that when you come to Jesus and you receive the the forgiveness of God that's available, the pressure is off. Because here's what that forgiveness is. Because Jesus is perfect, and, and perfect means complete and eternal, it also means that the forgiveness that he provides is complete and eternal. There's nothing more to be added to it and it never stops. That's our forgiveness in Jesus. And so if that's you and that sounds like something that you want, all you have to do is say yes to Jesus right now that he is the savior you need. And if you want, you can fill out a connect card and check the box that says interested in knowing more about a personal relationship with Jesus and me or one of the other folks on staff will follow up with you. And and we would love to, to, to start what that journey looks like for you and talk about what that journey looks like for you. And for those of us who have already said yes to Jesus, let's keep, look at this. In verse 26, it says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent Unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. You see, this Jesus is our perfect sacrifice, offered up once for all. It is complete, and it's eternal. And so for those of you who have said yes to Jesus, and for those of you who, who, who tend to have a bent like me, that we struggle for perfection, we struggle to be complete without God, let me ask you this question. Are you tired of trying to be perfect? Because that's what it feels like. It is exhausting to try and be complete without God. When Jesus is your perfection, the pressure is off. And there is a rest available for you deep in your soul. And in particular, one area that I think we as Jesus followers struggle with the most in perfection is the voices that are in our head. It's the opinions of others the stuff people have said to us, whether, whether, whether good-intentioned or whether bad-intentioned, it doesn't make any difference. It sticks in our head and, and, and anchors these places in our soul. And, and, and that fuels a lot of our desire to, to, to be perfect because if we can prove these voices wrong, then we will be something. The problem is we can't prove those voices wrong because they enjoy condemning us too much. And for us we can remind those voices that Jesus is greater than our perfection. That he is the perfect one and what he says about us matters than what those voices say about us. They matter even than our own opinions of us. We look at ourselves and and we see everything that's wrong and God looks at us and he sees everything that's wrong but he also sees everything that's right because of his son. And when Jesus sees us, When Jesus sees you, he doesn't hear those voices in your head. He doesn't hear your voices in your head because his voice is the one that matters. And when he sees you, all he says is, I love you. I love you. That's our Jesus. That's our perfect one. No strings attached. No perfection needed because he has already provided it. Look at verse 28. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priest, but the, word, uh, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So not only is he a priest, he is the son. And he is forever. He is complete and he is eternal. Jesus is greater than my perfection. One of my favorite movies is Rudy. Um, I don't know why. I'm not a big football person, but I love Rudy. I love the movie of Rudy, and there's a scene where, where Rudy's life ambition has been to play football for Notre Dame, and uh, the problem is he's, he's not a very good football player, nor is he a very good student to get into Notre Dame, and and he gets this point in his life where it looks like he's going to miss the opportunity and he's not going to be able no matter how much hard work he's put in no matter how much effort he's given no matter how good he's tried to make everything look there's a deadline approaching and he's not going to be able to meet meet it and he he's befriended by this priest and so he sits down with this priest for, for wisdom and for counsel. And he, I think what he really wants is he wants this motivating speech of you can do it. You've, you've got what it takes, you can do it. And he sits down with this priest and kind of lays it out there. And this priest goes, you know, in all my years of ministry, I've, I've learned two things. There is a God and I'm not him. In other words, God's got this. God's got you so you don't have to have this. God's got you. There is a God, and you're not him. Jesus is perfect. You don't have to be. That's the pressure that's off. And so church today, let's lay down our attempt to be perfect. And instead, let's pick up Jesus's perfection instead. And when you leave this place and those voices are rattling around in your head telling you you're not good enough, you're not perfect enough, you're not complete enough, and you strive to be, you remind those voices that Jesus is greater than. He's greater than your perfection. You remind your soul that Jesus is greater than my perfection. Let's pray.